Amen. Good morning. So before our nine o'clock service, our student ministry director, Brady, said, you know, we've got 80 students attending the nine o'clock service and we're planning to leave for New York City. I hope you have a short sermon. And I said, guaranteed, because I'm preaching on Zacchaeus. So it'll be, it'll be short. Um, and, and again, uh, thank you for groaning. Um, Zacchaeus is this guy who went out on a limb for Jesus. And there's so much for us to learn. But but he was despised because uh, few people would stoop so low to be a tax collector for the Romans. Um, but it wasn't as low for him to stoop, so it was easier. And so Jesus gave him short notice for his lunch date. And then Jesus is going to cut short his, his career as a tax collector. He's going to cut it short. Um, and so we're in this section, and what is this chapter really set to teach us? And that is, uh, in this Up to Code series, we're saying... Is our discipleship up to code? And ultimately, the measure of that is Christ-likeness. Is it making us like Christ? But you can't be like Christ as an individual or as a church unless you embrace Christ's mission. We're just fooling ourselves if we say, well, yeah, I'm really incorporating Christ in who I am. And like, but it's like a private therapy session. <laughs> you have to be like Christ in terms of the mission. And we see that Jesus is going to save Zacchaeus from his sin and his selfishness, but also his secrecy. And he's going to call him out to recruit him to be part of his mission. So let's read the word of God and then let's dig right into our text. Luke 19. This is the last interview, the last table encounter Jesus has before he goes to the cross. He's on his way. And it says, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, that last verse is really the framework of our whole, the whole message this morning, that to be like Christ is to be like him in his mission. He comes to seek in, in outrageous ways, uh, and he comes to save us in, in more wholesale ways than we can ever understand. And Jesus said that verse, defining his mission, right after he said to Zacchaeus, you're now a son of Abraham. There could not have been a higher um, bar set. You are now part of the family, and now uh, you are the one who has not only been sought, but you have been saved, and now you are recruited to be part of this mission. So let's dig in. We're going to see, first of all, uh, what's so radical about Jesus seeking. And starting in verse 1, uh, Jesus is seeking out publicly a man who was the most hated man in Jericho. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, if Jesus had an Instagram account and, and he had a picture of him and Zacchaeus, it would have caused him major, major scandal and problem. 
Because in that frame was the person who was the man who was most hated in this whole city of Jericho. Despised and hated. And I'm going to show you why in a little bit. Uh, I think they would have been even further scandalized and angry that uh, in that whole town of Jericho, the only person whose name we know today is this man <laughs> who they saw as, as the man who's most, who most deserved to be totally forgotten. And it's very interesting that tax collectors are mentioned six times in Luke's gospel. And every single one of those times, I'm going to take you through it, they are mentioned enormously positively. And that would have been absolutely, not just annoying, but scandalous to the readers of Luke's gospel. Uh, Now, uh, one of the reasons a lot of you right now are going, wow, they're mentioned positively, uh, is that you are not immersed enough to realize just how much they deserve to be hated. Uh, The revolutionaries hated them because they were arming the military that prevented revolution. Uh, The collaborators hated the tax collectors because they were the ones who made their lives miserable and the Roman soldiers often would break in and, 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 and brutalize their families and just rule by intimidation and fear. And the Romans despised them because after all, I mean, though they were working for the Romans, you do despise somebody who will turn their backs and be a collaborator and traitor to their own people. Uh, they're low life. And, and so you had to really be a low life to take this job and the Jews despised them. Uh, And so we read of Zacchaeus, he's not just an ordinary tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He is the Tony Soprano of the tax collectors. I think he's played by actor Danny DeVito, but think Tony Soprano and Danny DeVito playing the role. And as the chief tax collector, it meant that Zacchaeus reported directly to the Romans. And that all of the other tax collectors reported to him. And so if you were a tax collector and there was a problem, somebody was not paying the beefed up bill, like maybe they owed 2000 and you charged them 10000 because you knew they could afford it. And so you confiscated, you kept the 8000 you gave the 2000 away. Um, but somebody was, was rebelling and not doing that. They would go to Zacchaeus and then Zacchaeus would go to the Roman soldiers and the Roman soldiers would pay them a visit. And it was kind of like a, a mafia, you know, mob rule uh, in that they would make an example of that person. And there are accounts in Roman history of the tax collectors would come and they would beat someone up or they would maim them or disfigure them and kind of say, this is what happens to you if you want to resist. They didn't mess around. And so he's the collaborator in chief. uh, and, And he's the ringleader of this corrupt system based on the abuse of power and of greed. It's based on the abuse of power and greed, the whole system. And he would use violence to get his job done. And, and so you wonder, what kind of person would do that, would turn their backs on their people? I don't know. So, some people say, well, maybe, maybe he was abused himself. Maybe he was teased because he was short his entire life. Everybody uh, teased him and uh, marginalized him. And so he says, hey, uh, remember me? We went to first grade together. And, and remember me? You went to high school together. And you teased me all the time about being short. Well, I just want to tell you, don't shortchange me. Or I'm going to give you a little Roman soldier makeover. <laughs> And, and he's a collaborator because of wealth. Now, look, collaborators are always hated. There were people who collaborated with the Nazis, uh, but they collaborated often under the gun. Like, I got to collaborate with the Nazis because they, they say they're going to kill my children or kill my wife or, you know. And so really, those kind of collaborators, though they were despised, they're also part of the victims, right? But Zacchaeus was a Jew, and he was a collaborator 
not because there was a gun to his head, so to speak, but he enlisted freely because of the life of material wealth he could live. And that's why it says, our text says he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So imagine that. He's not doing it because the gun's held to his head. And, and, and so Zacchaeus, imagine if you were his neighbor and you see, wow, they're putting in a new swimming pool. It's my tax dollars at work. Uh, or, or, wow, I can't even afford a car and he's got a, a brand new sports car and he's added onto his garage to store it. And that's my tax dollars at work. And, and, and so he's putting in an addition so he can have this huge flat screen. My tax dollars at work. Uh, and, and so he was, he was hated. So those who teased him when he was young now trembled when he knocked on their doors. Those who handed him insults before, he now handed them bills. And those who once laughed at him now addressed him with fear, motivated uh, by fear uh, they had a respect for him. So now let me read you, without all that background about tax collectors and the chief tax collectors, what Luke tells us about tax collectors, because every single time he's telling us something positive. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing, and Luke reports in verse 12, the tax collectors came to be baptized, saying to John, teacher, what should we do? Then in Luke 5, verse 27, there's this guy, Matthew, and it says he's a tax collector, and so Jesus called him and made him one of the inner 12, made him an apostle. Luke chapter 7, verse 29, it says that when they heard Jesus, all of the people and the tax collectors accepted that God's way was right, but the Pharisees and Bible experts rejected it. <laughs> At Luke 15, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around Jesus to hear him, but the Pharisees were murmuring. <laughs> and then worst of all, in the chapter right before this one, Jesus tells a parable, and it's about two men going to pray. And he makes the tax collector the example and the, and the pious hero of the story. He describes the Pharisee who goes in, and, and the Pharisee actually literally prays to himself. And he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. But then the tax collector, called the publican, he goes in and he just falls down. Maybe this literally was Zacchaeus. Who knows? And he just says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who was heard? It was the tax collector. Now, they were despised. They deserved, in a sense, to be despised. They were enormously, horribly compromised, and they were part of a whole abusive system that was predicated upon greed. And yet, Jesus is, is in a sense, opening the door to them, and he's saying, if you understand who I am, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to seek and to save the lost. And so we see in, in verse 4, as the text moves on, here's Zacchaeus. And he runs ahead, and he just wants to see Jesus. And you see how this, say, this setting is set up to scandalize people. Jesus is surrounded by the crowd. Zacchaeus is up here. Jesus can't call out to Zacchaeus without making this like a spotlight moment. <laughs> and, and so he has to call Zacchaeus, and, and you'll note that Jesus doesn't put any conditions on this. Look, if he had called out Zacchaeus, the crowd would have applauded. If he had made an appointment to him so that standing at the door of his house... He could have told, stood at the door and then publicly told him off. That would have been a PR masterpiece. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus honors him without any conditions. Jesus gives him the, the seed of intimacy and honor with him. He doesn't make moral reform. He doesn't even talk about moral reform or make it a condition of his presence. And Jesus doesn't wait to be invited. He invites himself. As much as we think that, Jesus, that Zacchaeus went out on a limb for Jesus, he doesn't really go out on a limb for Jesus. Jesus goes way out on a limb for him, publicly embracing him before there's any kind of qualification to that love or moral correction. 
And I want to just ask you this question. Do you see Jesus standing at the doorway to your life telling you off, pointing out all your flaws and sins and the shame that you know about and a good deal of the sin and shame that you don't know about but ought and make that a working condition for intimacy with him? I think there's something in all of us that sees Jesus that way and we will never, we will never get that from the Gospels. That's our own hearts. That's the enemy of our souls who, who tells us that. Jesus stands at the doorway of, of our life, not seen as, first of all, as, as flawed sinners who need to be fixed, but he sees us as image bearers who need to, first of all, be loved. This is always the way he begins because here's the reality. It's true we need to repent, but it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not our repentance that leads to the kindness of God. That turns the gospel on its head. It's like, hey, obey Jesus and then he won't condemn you. No, it's Jesus always says, hey, I don't condemn you. Now, go sin no more. But there, it's not some kind of prid quo quo uh, kind of connection here. It's radical. And this is really offensive. Zacchaeus, and the only thing Jesus says to him is not clean up your life, but he says hurry. In other words, there's no time to clean up your life. That's not what this is predicated for. I'm not going to have lunch with you. I'm not going to have fellowship with you if you somehow meet my standards and come up to this. But he says, no, I've already, I've already got you in my sights of love. And I, I want you to let me love you. And the next verse tells us what the response of, of everyone else was. It says, when they saw it. Now you think, okay, well, the Pharisees. But no, Luke says, they all, which would include all of the other disciples. They must have been ticked. They're like, Jesus, we're getting ready to go in Jerusalem for your public announcement of being the Messiah. And this, man, I wish you would get some good Madison Avenue marketing advice. This is horrible, what you're doing. And they all grumbled, all of them. Jesus is, I mean, they all, I think that Jesus is alone in embracing him. Nobody else really gets it. And they're grumbling. They had just asked Jesus in the previous chapter, who can be saved? And, and, and Jesus is showing them right now. And here's the reality. People who most like religion most hate the gospel. And people who most hate religion because they know they can never measure up, they can never obey the rules, they can never come into the inside. They're the ones who are ready to receive the gospel. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus always attracted the outlaws to himself, and they were attracted to him. That's something the church has to always think about, because if we are repelling the people who are attracted to Jesus, and we are attracting the people who were repelled by Jesus, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the way we're doing it. And so, what's going on? Here's, here's the reason. Unless you know you're a moral failure, you will want religion, not the gospel. Unless you know you're a moral failure, you, you will want some instructions to build yourself up for it. Look, religion gives people who think they are better a merit badge. But Jesus gives people who have no merit and know it himself. And his grace is intrusive. His grace is intimate. His grace calls you to let him love you. And a basic principle of ministry is this. What brings sinners joy makes more religious people grumble. It's without fail. And Jesus' priority here is it's very offensive. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 21, he said, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven above, ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. They were ready to believe the, the amazing good news of Jesus, which was in a sense a kind of declare bankruptcy. And 
Bankruptcy can be good news to somebody who knows they have no assets and a lot of bills, but if, if you have a lot of money and somebody comes to you and say, hey, we're declaring chapter 11 today, you're like, oh my, no. What about my assets? And that's how, uh, that's how a religious person responds, but a person who knows that they are not just middle class in, in spirit, but poor in spirit, bankrupt in spirit, they receive this as good news. They know that nothing that they have done or can do or ever have done counts. And so when Jesus comes, he's embraced this way. And so this is Jesus seeking radically. But then we see the transformation that happens. And again, I want you to see it comes after this kind of love, this kind of association. Zacchaeus stands and he says to the Lord after this intimate public table fellowship, he says, behold, Lord. Just, just that phrase alone, behold, Lord. He's, it's, a, it's a phrase of surrender and submission. It's saying, you, you are Lord. Uh, and, he, and he says, now half of my goods I give to the poor. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, now that you've, I've interacted with you, I'm going to go back and be a more honest tax collector. I'm going to betray the people, but I'm going to do it honestly. I'm going to just make a little adjustment. No, he, ha- he has to have a complete reorientation of how he related to his identity in his job. But there's a second thing we see. He's, he's going to also have to completely reorient the way he was tied to material things. This is something that you find Jesus insists on in virtually every encounter he has, that anytime there's faith in Jesus, it intercepts how we relate to material goods and riches. That's why Luke emphasizes it so much. And and so he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and there's no doubt of that, he's really saying it's set in a construction that means where I have defrauded anyone, I will restore fourfold. And so You'll, you'll find here, Jesus is saying, your relationship to these things and riches is, can no longer be the same. And why does Luke, and why does the Bible talk so much about riches and material goods? If you can pay your bills, if you can pay your mortgage and your utilities, and you're not in fear of losing everything, then you're in the category of person who's in some danger. <laughs> because when you are set up like that, and you have that kind of security, it's very easy to look to that kind of security that you have through financial security as a kind of spiritual righteousness. And to say, hey, the reason I have money is because I'm smarter, I'm savvier, I'm a better person. And, and that's why the Gospels talk about money so much, because it blinds us and it makes us rely upon it to do something that really only God can do. And that's why when you come to know Jesus, he not only saves you from your guilt and your shame, but he also saves you from the impact of your sins. And all of a sudden, you're ready to... Here's Zacchaeus, he's basically saying, I am cutting the umbilical cord between myself and my former occupation. I am cutting the umbilical cord between myself and having a padded nest egg and living at the level that I'm used to living. Because you cannot just squeeze Jesus in and have the same relationship to your material. Um, The way that you spend your resources before you meet Jesus can't be the same as the way you spend your resources after you meet Jesus. And so again, I know many people say, hey, now that I know Jesus, I have a completely different view of material things and riches. You say, okay, well, how's that spell itself out? I said, well, I used to spend 100% of everything that I made upon myself, and now I'm down to 99. It's like, "Uh, that doesn't sound like a Jesus-sized change. 
I don't think that anybody ever meets Jesus and it isn't at least reduced by 10%. Hey, Jesus has been 100%. And here's the reality. We live in a world where people spend not only 100% of what they make upon themselves and their own needs, but they go into credit card debt. So we're spending like 110, 120% of everything that we have upon ourselves completely. We plow to the complete edges of our fields and then we glean it all for ourselves, right? And Jesus says, no, no. Jesus says, no, you can live further on 90% with me than you can live on 100% for yourself. And so he calls them to this kind of change. And it's always the way that he does. And so here's a guy who can basically say, I can continue to live on half of what I have. I'm giving half of it away. I've seen, I know some people who've done that. I know some people who live on half of their income and give half away. But he also says, if I have defrauded anything, I'm going to go beyond the law. Because here's the thing he knew that his forgiveness was not predicated on some kind of law that he had met. Jesus had sacrificed everything so that he could be saved. And so he says, there's nothing that I'm going to withhold. And this is why Jesus says to him in verse 9, he says, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation is not simply about saving us from the guilt of our sin, although that is the beginning point and that is incredible and we don't deserve that. But salvation includes not just being saved from the guilt of sin, it's being saved from the power of sin running our lives. And that's why his first words are, Behold, Lord, that's part of salvation. We're delivered from the power and the destructive force of the other things that run our life. And so when Jesus enlists someone to be belong to him, he actually is bringing wholesale and complete transformation. He recenters our life. He doesn't just forgive us, but he actually fixes us by recentering him and putting himself at the very core. We don't just exchange different selfish centers. Jesus saves Zacchaeus from his sins, from his selfishness, from his secrecy. And he says, Now salvation has come to this house. And then note the next phrase. This is so loaded. He says, He also is a son of Abraham. You know how this was the prize status. You know, if you were a son of Abraham, the promise to Abraham was, through your descendants, I am going to bless the nations. And so he's saying to Zacchaeus, I haven't just forgiven you so that you're ground zero, but he says, I am now bringing you in, that you as a son of Abraham are going to be an instrument that leads to the blessing of the nation. And that's the blessing of the world, all the peoples of the world. That's why the next statement Jesus made is inseparably connected to this statement. He's a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, Jesus is the ultimate descendant of Abraham, the one descendant of Abraham through which when people put their faith in him, all of the peoples of the world can be blessed. Because everyone who calls on the name Jesus, who is the Son of Abraham promised, is going to be blessed and gathered into the people of Abraham. And so now Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, I am here, and because I am here and you have embraced me, salvation is here, and you are now part of this movement. You're not just a consumer who's saved from the guilt of your sins and goes on about your life, but hasn't really changed the operational structure. But with me at the center now, you are part of this mission. And so join me in seeking and bringing salvation to lost people. That's part of it. And so Jesus seeks. And then when Jesus saves us, recentering our lives, then he recruits us to be part of his mission. And that is part of the incredible good news. We get to be part of what Jesus is doing. And we can't possibly say that we are Christ-like unless we have embraced his mission. So you know, there are many people in Doylestown who have never heard the gospel credibly explained to them. And 
a number of those people, a great number of those people would say to their knowledge, they do not know a single person who has staked their life upon an investigation of the claims of Christ and has accepted Christ. They don't know someone who is functioning with Christ at the very center of their lives. Now imagine you're in that group of people. You've got this bubble around you and you, aren't, you don't have access to anybody. And you know that there is a church in Doylestown that has that information. How would you want that church to determine how they deploy their resources relationally and, and in every, how would you want them to mobilize? You'd want them to somehow burst that bubble so that you could somehow get in on this incredible news. And it's not only individuals who think that way. We, we, we live in this world where there are unreached peoples, which means that there is no one who has been sent to bring the news of Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever heard of this little book in the New Testament called Romans? A number of you have heard of it. Some of you, some of you, maybe some of you haven't. Do you know why we have that book, humanly speaking? Because this church got planted in Rome that Paul had never seen, and Paul had made a promise that he broke. And that was a promise, I'm going to come and see you and teach you. He'd have been a big headline speaker. And he broke that promise. Do you know why he broke that promise? He tells us in the book of Romans in chapter 15. He kind of makes an apology without being completely apologetic about it because he's given a reason, right? And whenever you give the reason for your apology, you sound like one of these athletes who apologizes but says, you know, it's your fault. And Paul basically, he says really powerfully, he says, the reason I have not come to see you is because I must go and preach in places where Christ has not yet been named, so he says, I've been a trailblazer and a pioneer, and I'm sorry that that put you who were on the inside on my delayed list, and I never got to you, but now I'm going to write this all down for you. And so, so we have one of the most powerful books in the whole New Testament because of Paul's missionary priorities. <laughs> because Paul was leading and living that way, we have one of the most the greatest, one of the greatest books about what Christian discipleship is in terms of drilling deep into our foundations. And, and Paul lived that out. He lived that way. And it's so important for us to live that way. You know, there's always a gravitational pull inward. It's like, wow, you know, you can have 50 Bible studies. And it's like, was there, is there a single Bible study for somebody who says, I'm not sure I believe the Bible or I pay attention to it. So I want to know, is the Bible worth of being paid attention to? I don't buy any of the claims of Christ. So is there any place that just going to lay out the evidence for the resurrection? It's so easy, like to front load all of our energies, internal, 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 internal. It's a gravitational pull. I feel it myself. I've basically taken this step because it's always been that way since I've been a pastor. All of the, There's plenty to consume my energy inward and nobody on the inside will ever really put teeth to make sure that I'm going outward, right? It's just a fact. So I, I got to do it this way so that I can be faithful and being a disciple and, and, and being a fisher of men and not a keeper of the aquarium, so to speak, I, I've had to, in a, in a sense, say, okay, I know that, like, so Monday I've got to collapse and rest. Tuesday's, you know, staff and reports and various things. But Wednesday, there has got to be space in my schedule where I am talking to people who, who either don't give a rip about Jesus or definitely do not know Jesus. And I am doing something that is outward, 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 because the gravitational pull is always inward, inward, inward. And if I'm going to be credible in saying I'm following the one who comes to seek and to save the lost, I've got to live that out. And I was looking even, and I was talking with our, our missions pastor, Bruce Finn, about this, missions budgets. 
and missionaries. You know, I have a heart for the nation of Zimbabwe, but you know, like 80%, I think that's conservative, more than 80% of missionaries who go and do mission work in Zimbabwe, they're all located in the suburbs of Harare. That's the most rich and also the most comfortable placement for missionaries. And they never get to the outskirts. I've known so many people, I've known so many classmates of mine and colleagues who says, we're all about reaching unreached people. And then I find out what they're doing and they're, they've never left North America. That isn't, that isn't what Jesus here is saying. That isn't what the way Paul operated. Paul, he said, I'm going to ignore you. You're a little church in this great city of Rome. There's lots of non-believers around you, but you at least name the name of Christ. I'm going to go to places and languages and peoples and cultures that do not know Jesus. And so it's so easy for missions budgets where we say, we look at where are the dollars going. And it's like, wow, do you realize? I don't know whether we've got any dollars going to a people group who do not yet know who Jesus Christ is. Because the gravitational pull gets inward, inward, inward. It's what happens to us. And so we have to fight that tendency that makes our lives and even our churches a cushiony place to just live out the gospel in comfort. And so this is what, this is what Jesus challenges. He says, I am inviting you to be part of this. I, I am inviting you to be part of this, to know this, and to be part of this ever outward powerful inclusive circle and and here's the secret of that you know the greatest way to neglect your needs is to refuse to link your needs to having deep and loving friendships with people who do not know christ it's counterintuitive but you have a need to not pay attention to your needs and to pay attention to other people's needs and one of the ways you can test whether you're a disciple is wherever you live wherever you work to say how many of those people around you do you really know who don't know christ and here's one of the tests. Do you know the reason they don't know Christ? Is it because they've never heard? Is it because it doesn't make sense to them? Is it because they've heard it many times and they reject this tenet and that tenet? Do you know the major problems in their lives? Do you know how to pray for them? Do you know what depresses them and burdens them? And make that list. How many of them do you know? Because unless you know a number of them, don't call yourself a disciple. Call yourself a consumer or something else. Because a disciple embraces not only their identity as a child of Abraham, but also the mission of the child of Abraham. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, they said this, will the heathen who've never heard the gospel be saved? You ever heard that question? Will the heathen who have never heard the gospel be saved? You know what he said? He said, well, it's more a question with me whether we who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who have not can be saved. That was his answer. I will tell you this. There's no question that we who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who don't have the gospel, we cannot be considered serious disciples of Christ. Please, let's not kid ourselves with that kind of definition. But Jesus says, here my love is so great. I've come to seek. I've come to seek you, but I've also come to save you from all the other agendas and those who follow me, those who have the identity of the children of Abraham, those who know the cost that I'm getting ready to go and die this horrific death so that I can bring everyone, no matter how far they have wandered and strayed and failed, into my family. And he says, and after I've brought them into my family, then I am going to deploy them as those who bear that mission. The Son of Man comes. He seeks without conditions and with great intentionality. He saves all of the broken places and all the places were centered on the wrong things. He recenters us. 
and then he enlists us to go and join him and look like him, not only in his character, not only in his content, but also in his mission, in, his, in what he does. And that's part of the wonderful news, that our lives can actually be part of the greatest story, the story that will matter a million years from now, the thing that people will be uh, uh, remarking on that will, will change the world a million years from now is the thing that Jesus invites us to be part of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us not only to the glorious recognition that our sins and our shame can be completely forgiven and covered over, but you also call us to recognize that our selfishness and even our secrecy and the small little ambitions of our lives can be swallowed up into something greater, something worthy. And so, God, we ask that as we sing this song about the scandal of your grace, and as we pray that you would make us like Jesus, that you would make us more like him in specific ways in his mission. Lord, may your spirit speak that the words we speak would be a true encounter with you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.